Hello and welcome to the very first CAAV podcast hosted by me, Alec Jones. Now, for listeners who might not be familiar with the CAAV, the Central Association of Agricultural Valuers is a specialist professional body representing almost 3,000 members practicing throughout England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. CAV members are agricultural and rural valuers who provide professional advice and valuation expertise on a range of issues affecting the countryside, such as tenancy matters, sales and purchase of farms and land, taxation, compulsory purchase of land and property, auctioneering, conservation issues and farming business advice. And I'm joined by the Secretary and Advisor to the CAV, Jeremy Moody. Uh, Thank you and... um Glad to be on the first podcast and to launch this initiative for the CAAV. Uh, This is an opportunity to talk through how we are looking to tackle the changes coming uh, following Brexit for agriculture in the countryside. And there's some significant changes uh, afoot and dealing with business change is actually the theme of this podcast because the CAV has just released a new publication called Reviewing a Business, an Introduction for Agricultural Valuers. This is publication number 236 and the foreword is written by Andrew Coney, chairman of the CAV's Future Skills Working Group. And Jeremy, it might be useful to explain what exactly is the Future Skills Working Group and why was it established? Uh, We looked a couple of years ago at the prospects for future policy and economic change for agriculture in the countryside and thought that it was likely we would see significant pressure and change and opportunity for many clients on farms and estates around the country. And we looked ahead at what it is that clients might want from members as these changes unfolded as we look over the next few years. And to set that work in hand, we pulled together the Future Skills Working Group of a number of senior and practitioner members to review these issues and look at the kind of changes that we would want to support members to be ready to help their clients. So what do you envisage to be the biggest pressures on farming over the next few years? I think we see Brexit as accelerating a lot of changes that might happen anyway. Uh, We see it bringing forward changes in business approach, uh, bringing forward new policies, the uh, changes for environmental delivery, uh, and the adoption of technology and innovation on a much faster timescale than perhaps we might have foreseen. We're looking particularly in England and Wales at the phased withdrawal of area support from farms, making their ability to earn money from production and from how they can farm the environment equally important. And we're then looking at the wider pressures coming over the next generation as we adapt to climate change and seek to mitigate climate change. And what are the timescales associated with all this change? In England, we're looking at a transition period starting next year in 2021 with the first cuts to basic payment, with basic payment to be completely removed by the end of 2027. So we have seven years in which phased change helps us manage that process of transition, helps us look at businesses over that slice of a family's life cycle as they find their their sense of new opportunities or how they will adapt, whether it's generational succession, whether it's a new enterprise, whether indeed it's withdrawal from farming and letting the land out, or whatever the many other ways that will suit those people in their circumstances. And you're a firm believer that people should make the best use of this current time window for change? 
I think if you want to reduce it to a simple phrase, it's manage change before it manages you. If you, this will, for many businesses, this will involve time. There will be time needed to understand the pressures coming through, to take them on board, think them through, begin to look at strengths and weaknesses, where the opportunities are, what, what, what are the skills in the family, what's the finance available, what might be the routes forward in their situation, then critically to take decisions and then to implement them. And if that's managing generational change or it's a new planning application, that of itself will take a little bit of time. And I would like to see, I think it would be wise for those businesses that want to be part of the future, that they have done most of that by, let's say, 2025, to be ready then for the final loss of BPS in England, to be ready for also where we go with prospective changes in trade policy as they begin to bear on some of our markets in the different ways that that will happen. And this is, of course, true for people working and practising throughout the UK in all four countries. Very much so. Uh, Each country is going to be delivering its own policies. Uh, I've just referred to the ones coming through in England. Wales is doing something relatively similar with the prospect of moving completely from basic payment to a sustainable farming scheme, depending on a business review of the the business and environmental review of the farm, uh, and then paying people to manage the land in ways that help deliver public policy objectives. You're looking across the United Kingdom at whatever may flow from changes in trade policy, whether there might be more open markets for particularly livestock products, or indeed possibly, of course, some more trade friction that might assist dairy and horticulture. And these are external changes that we can't foresee clearly at the moment, but which, again, can pose some very significant challenges for some sectors. And we've had uh, the Agriculture Bill uh, reintroduced into Parliament recently. What does that actually give in terms of uh, a legislative foundation for the new policies? The government last year and shortly this year has been setting out its policies uh, for where it wishes to go in England. Just the other governments elsewhere have been doing so. The Agriculture Bill is a bill in the main about powers. It's the powers to manage the new policies so that they've got the legislative base to help deliver that transition. They've got the legislative base to define what are the new public goods, the environmental goods, the animal welfare goods, the the management of soil that they want and are willing to pay for as in replacement for the basic payment scheme. It then looks a lot more at other issues such as the question around data, around contracts in supply chains, reports on food security, even a definition of fertilizers. And for the work of a lot of CAV members, Uh, a number of changes to tenancy law, uh, all of which are focused really on the government's twin objectives of environmental enhancement and improving farming productivity. And it's been described as possibly one of the most radical changes of policy and, and law since the Second World War. I think that's a good way of looking at it. The last time that this country sat down and said what it wanted from farming was in 1947. The 1947 Agriculture Act, followed by the tenancy legislation of the following couple of years, crystallised the model that we operated until we went into the European Union in 1973. Since then, the decisions have been taken at Brussels. Now this all comes home to the UK, indeed each each of the four parts of the UK. It's our first chance in two and a half generations to take a look at this. It is a 
critical moment to take stock of the issues in front of us, whether they are issues that we could have dealt with inside the EU or they're issues we could leave in 10 years' time. If we don't use this to take stock and build a better agriculture, then I don't know when we ever will. And this very much forms a lot of the thinking of the Future Skills Working Group in trying to prepare businesses for this change. And one of the areas the Future Skills have been looking at in detail is uh, the need for business review advice, an area where advice might grow over the future years. Um, Jeremy, how would you begin? Where, where do you start in, in analysing a business? I think you have to look at one level at the accounts. You're also looking at the physical performance of the business. And you're looking at the people who are the business. This is a trade, farming is a trade, where it is family businesses, it's personal, and it's skills and it's aptitudes and it's attitudes coming through. And it's that mix of the finance, the physical delivery of the farming, and the personalities that go with it. And you're looking to review all three in terms of where are they now, Almost the question is, where do they want to be in 10 years' time? And how are they going to get there? Strip the basic payment out of the accounts. Now what does it look like? And of course, as that's only to be phased out, you are now doing that, you're looking five, seven years ahead. So how are you going to look at that path to manage costs, to be more efficient, to earn more income, earn a greater margin, do something else that will help you bounce back better in this, that test of resilience. How will you come out of this as a better business, looking at what will be the challenges and the opportunities of the new world? But there will be new schemes coming on board as well. We, we, you know, we've talked about the phasing out and withdrawal of BPS, but there will be new schemes to reward farmers for producing and protecting public goods. It's also been described as a, a change of mindset might be required to view the environment as an additional enterprise. To what extent will that feature in the discussions? That will depend again on where the business is and what it's doing. We're expecting two reuses of the money that's currently in basic payment and one will be some money going into productivity measures so that may be to help support investment or to acquire skills or to support better business management uh, as well as other measures the other and the prime one that the government talks about is the policy of public money for public goods that the taxpayers money that comes through bps would be reused to enter contracts with people to buy changes in management that do things that the public, society, the government would like done, but which aren't recognised in the marketplace. So if you're producing food, the marketplace buys the food. If you're taking carbon out of the atmosphere and sequestering it in soil or in trees, or you're managing land so that water doesn't then flood downstream, the market doesn't pay you for that. And here the state is talking about stepping in and entering into contracts for which there would be payments for you to make those changes. For some people, those would be changes, as with improving soil, that may be very consistent with productive farming. It may be win-win at that point. For others, they're buying change from you. And for people on more marginal land, then this becomes very much an the possibility, if the margin is in it, to be an alternative enterprise alongside the wheat, the lamb, the milk that you produce. So you would be looking at what environmental goods can I produce 
and does it earn me the money that means I want to sell the goods that the government wants to buy? Is there a deal between us? And that is an area that will need care and advice and analysis. So each business will have to conduct that analysis independently on a case-by-case basis. You'll, uh, you'll assess whether there's a new income stream to be had through uh, producing environmental goods. Uh, also elsewhere on the farm, you might want to focus on productivity. But what are the options that businesses can consider during this period of unprecedented change? The options, I think, boil down to a relatively small number of choices to start with. They then become much more complex in each circumstance. Are you capable of being a good commodity producer? We have spent decades with farming having been a specialist commodity producer. And I think that may, for many people, become more challenging. So if you're going to be a commodity producer, you have to focus on cutting the cost of production because the price is set for you by the world marketplace. Are there ways in which you can either make more money from the assets that you have, your land, your buildings, your machinery, your labour, your location? Or are there ways in which you can produce something that can be sold not as a, as, not as a commodity, but as something that is in somehow special quality, something different, something the market will pay you for and pay you a better price for, and a market that you can hold. So the people who are producing milk for the lactose intolerant, the people who are producing particular sorts of cereals, uh, the people who are able to sell meat well into restaurants, uh, the people who are able to uh, do all those things, whether it's, and some of them are niches, and some of them offer more opportunities, but those areas of added value, sometimes on-farm processing, sometimes skilled marketing, but looking beyond the farm gate to understand the customer and earn an honest profit from doing that. And so that boils down back, can you, do you want to be a commodity producer? If not, then somewhere in that spectrum between making money from your assets and producing something special is the answer. And some businesses already do all three, but some will find a particular focus in doing, finding their position at one of the three points of that triangle. So people might decide they want to become commodity producers and improve their productivity. And indeed, some businesses have already been looking hard at this over the years in in anticipation of a day where where subsidy income reduces significantly. Others have added value, sought off-farm income. But there could also be an option, a rather harder, a more difficult decision to take, would be to, to leave the industry, to let go. And that is clearly something that will be there to look at. I think as background... It's worth understanding something that professionals dealing with clients will be very aware of, which is the range of financial performance. That's the sheer gap between the best producing farms and those that are less financially successful. And that gap is is a large gap. If only we closed it, we would have solved most of this country's farming productivity problems. And most of that comes back on the studies of the HDB and others to the farmer rather than to other questions. And some of that's about timeliness of work and competence. Some of it's about business management. Some of it is about cost control. And other factors all, 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 all come into this. And so you will have people who will find the new economic challenges. Once shorn of BPS, the area payment system, which has enabled more people to stay where they are than perhaps might otherwise have done, 
but actually then just facing production economics will find may find that the moment where they are not they they are not able to continue and have a and have a lifestyle others may simply just be a question of the life cycle if you are at a particular point where either there are many other opportunities and you can see your farm farmed by others or this is a moment to consider retirement then those are the occasions when the next generation or letting your land to somebody else or simply selling and moving on all those are then equally part of the options as well as trying to find ways to work more successfully and develop a new business all too often you see people who just retreat into working ever harder for ever less reward almost hiding in business in, in simply in being busy and that is something where we need to try and bring an external perspective to widen the discussion to help the load of decision making in that from a family that is just moving into that position and for those who decide that um, their farming days are near, nearing an end and they want to consider possibly selling possibly renting out but increasingly there are more um, variety of options to consider when you're looking at joint ventures share farming contracting grazing agreements uh, where do you begin in trying to analyzing what suits me or what, what suits that business best that again turns on personal circumstances and preferences some people like to remain very close to farming uh, for their own reasons of who they think they are as well as sometimes for issues around taxation or other, or, or other concerns some people are happy to relax further if you're dealing with a small parcel of land then almost certainly letting on a tenancy is probably the most effective answer to that if you are looking at a larger parcel of land and you wish to remain more closely involved you wish still to be in business then opportunities like contract farming and we're working both on arable contract farming arrangements and livestock contract farming arrangements then those are there for you to look at but they to, to do them properly as an arrangement that tends to be better on medium to larger farm farms and units you can look as you've said at at grass keep just letting the grass out and there are ways of doing that that can keep you more or less of a farmer according to where you want to be on the spectrum beyond there are other arrangements that you see and thinking of some most obviously most often in the arable sector where two or three farmers will come together and pool their farming operation being then more efficient on labor and machinery and then farming their own land collectively but as a contracting exercise in that and that can work well there are a lot of options but it needs to be a clear business deal underneath it all with the logic of that then worked through so that it suits the parties as it as it as it goes on that gets to the point where you can set up an arrangement like this and it can work well but of course the years go by the parties age what suited somebody in his mid 60s may no longer be feasible for him to be in in business in his mid 80s and so these arrangements need review and consideration as to what suits the individual as the years go by as circumstances and wider issues change and to help people go through that process you often require external view as we mentioned right at the very beginning and valuers are increasingly adopting the role of not only being a trusted professional advisor but being a facilitator mm -hmm. and explain to me i know you refer to it in in the publication there's a whole chapter about facilitation but is this a new set of skills or is it a, a, a new label to what valuers have been doing all along i think as so often as this profession has adapted over over the last couple of centuries so often it's the 
underlying old skills that keep coming through, but every so when have a new label. Ultimately, yes, we talk about land, and yes, we talk about farming, and yes, we talk about tax, and we talk about value, and we talk about land law, but we're actually talking about people. We're talking about families. And these are families, not just the one, perhaps the one person who is presented as the head, but actually it's the people who have had past interests, and it's the people who are coming forward and maybe the next generation, as well as other members of the family. And helping manage those processes of change, talking people through it, seeing where the answers probably lie and helping them find them so that they take ownership. Those are old skills. And one of the roles I see that we have with broad and rounded experience covering a lot of areas of skill, but synthesizing it to try and help an individual business in its own position, then I think our skills there are, as you say, trusted advisor, it's also a safe challenger. You can put the question without it being seen as too pointed, but help the conversation move forward to recognise other interests in the family and help them arrive at the answer, sometimes forcing a diff- them to look at a difficult question. And often the hardest thing in that is getting them to the point. Once the ice is broken, sometimes it flows very easily. But getting to that point can sometimes require a level of nerve and care in handling it that means that people quite often don't get that far and with the help of a valuer they can. Because most farming businesses will rely on a range of, of advisors. They might turn to their solicitor for legal advice, their accountants, of course, to, to deal with the finances, their, their agricultural consultant or their feed representative. But what value, as you said, what's the difference that the valuer can bring is is that broad spectrum and, and, and a range of disciplines and knowledge they can draw upon to provide a, a more rounded, valuable piece of advice, possibly? I think that's exact, that's exactly it. It's the fact that we have to know something about all those various topics, whether it's planning, the issues around planning permission, or concern about the financial structure of the business and where we are with bank lending, whether it's knowing what granny wants, whether it's knowing something about actually that some enterprises now are more profitable than others, whether it's the interaction with tax, whether all those things are part of that mix and it's synthesizing a judgment in the round. Going to a more specialist profession or indeed just, a, 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 in a sense, a general feed advisor who can be a valuable source of com- conversation and of gossip and of basic advice, if you st- bring people on, there are higher levels in which we can then come in and then synthesize, bring that together, help people weigh the perspectives that they're looking at. And I think that's the bit in this that is missing. Too often it may be that one specialist advisor overlooks things that may be deeply damaging in another in another area of advice and our role is to try and understand the traps on each side and the opportunities on each side so that we manage to arrive at an effective answer across the whole spread. And once you've got that effective answer you've got to put that plan into action you've got to implement it how best do we go about doing that? First I think you actually try and record those decisions so that there's something that's down there in writing that people can refer to. It's then setting the hand to implementation, and it may be lodging a planning application, but that may take more time than you think, and then you've got to do the investment afterwards and all of that, so there's a programme to see through. If it's managing generational change, that's something about understanding and 
setting out the dynamics within the family. How is this actually going to happen? What is going to pass from one generation to the next? Or if land is to be let, how are we then actually going to let the land? How are we going to choose who the successor, who the new occupier is? So it is turning intention into decision into action. And that, again, is something where we can bring skills and the capacity to work for people to deliver that. And that could be over a period of time because change and implementing a plan could take a number of years. So you're reliant on that constant conversation throughout that process. I think this has to be a constant conversation. I've referred earlier on to some of this being in places being this being a difficult, for some people, difficult conversations. It's sustaining it over time. And that's where I come to the sense we're not doing. The one thing we're not doing in this country is a New Zealand cliff edge to which everybody then has to adjust immediately. We have been given the chance to move with a transition over seven years to a point where there is no area payment and there is money going into new new schemes that may offer people opportunities. That gives a framework into which to manage this time of considering, deciding and acting. But I come back to the basic theme. This is our chance to manage change for the business, lest just simply we're buffeted and change manages us. Absolutely. Well, it's a fascinating publication and I've enjoyed chatting with you, Jeremy, about it. And, and one of the things that comes through clearly to me is if, if a business wants to navigate this period of change successfully, it will turn on sound analysis and, and good advice. Now, this publication is not only a useful resource, but you're also planning on the back of this a business review conference later this year. Uh, we are operating a business review conference looking at um, the issues we've discussed today. We're looking at farm structures, so the possible different structures that people might use, and looking at that question of those conversations and facilitation in an event we're running near Birmingham on the 19th of March. And people will be able to find more information on that on the CAV website in time to come. It will come on the website once we've got the final details settled and it'll be published there. And what next? What other publications can we expect from the CAV this year? We are looking immediately at publications on contract farming agreements. We have one to update on arable contract farming, essentially around combinable cropping. We then have a new publication on livestock contract farming. Uh, This is where one farmer with a breeding flock of sheep or, or, or a herd of cattle uh, and indeed other, other sorts of, of herd that, have, um, that produce progeny or produce takes on another man to manage them on a contract, bringing skills, bringing labour, bringing quality machinery to the work so that, again, it becomes a more efficient, a more productive enterprise, earning money for both of them. Looking beyond that, I think that with the new tenancy legislation, we will almost certainly be producing a further publication on the changes that come through once the Agriculture Bill is, is, is in law. We're looking more generally at a paper on joint ventures. So having looked a lot at tenancies, having looked a lot at contract farming, is then looking more widely at the range of wider range of options that an owner and a farmer can have, or indeed two farmers between them can have, to again achieve a better business to better secure their own futures. We are working on texts around the Electronic Communications Code, that's the masts and cables that support modern broadband, and so how they how they interrelate with land ownership, which has become a very contested area. And we're also looking, of course, with the increasing range of non-farming activities in the countryside at a specific publication on business rates being a factor that often concerns a farmer looking at something that might otherwise be a very sensible proposition. 
So you've got uh, quite a bit of writing work to do for the remainder of 2020 and you and your policy team. Well, Jeremy, thank you ever so much for your time. We've covered a lot of ground in this podcast uh, and I'm sure we'll be revisiting some of the topics discussed in future episodes. Thank you also uh, for everyone who's listened to CAV podcast number one. Hopefully you found it informative. And if you're interested in purchasing the publication, you can do so by visiting the CAV website. Also, if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Send in your comments via email to inquire at cav.org.uk so that's it for today until the next episode on behalf of jeremy and i all the best and goodbye